Humans have always traveled. Seriously. We've been doing it since before our species was actually human. In Neolithic times, early humans migrated from North Africa to Europe. The demand for resources, weather, war, and trade have driven human movement for thousands of years. Okay, so my point here is that we've been traveling for a very long time. But the way in which we travel has changed significantly, and it continues to. When I chat with my own parents about their travels, there are distinct differences between how they traveled and how I travel now. My mom and dad traveled in the 80s. Mom has told me stories about writing handwritten letters and mailing them home to Canada from the Philippines, Thailand, and India. She and her travel buddy wrote home once every three to four weeks, one handwritten letter. Whenever they could, they would call home, always alternating between parents. They'd have a chat and then that parent would call the other set of parents to let them know that both my mom and her buddy were safe. Things today are pretty different. When I spent eight months in Asia, I was able to video call my family regularly, and I would talk with them over WhatsApp, sharing pictures every single day. With our mobile devices and Wi-Fi, I'd argue that travel today is much easier. Transport is better, we have information at our fingertips, and we can communicate home 24-7. Before we get started, I have to quickly shout out to my mom because this episode was her idea. She literally pitched it to me, citing that it'd be nice to hear some more diverse people on the podcast. So mom, this one's for you. Okay, so that was a long intro, and I promise I'm done rambling. Alpaca pals, today I'm chatting with Valika. Valika. Did I say it wrong? I did. (laughs) And she's going to share with us her experiences as a traveler in the 1960s. Welcome, Valika. Thank you very much. Actually, my travel started as early as the 60s only because my parents, who were immigrants, decided that since they couldn't go back and visit their families, especially because they were in communist countries at the time, that they would just throw their 13-year-old daughter on a plane (laughs) and uh, loaded me down with like as much baggage as was allowed for a single person. And I wore three layers of clothing with the instructions that take this home to the family, leave everything there, come back with empty bags. You're going to your godmothers, you know, you're flying to Vienna and then you're going to take a bus and it'll drop you off in this square at 5.30 in the morning and your godmother has your photograph and she'll pick you up. So that was my first experience traveling. Were you afraid? Actually, I really wasn't. I was an only child and I'd been brought up with adults and I I think it kind of makes you more independent. A lot of their friends were like, shocked that they were doing this. I think personally, they were just looking for six weeks of childless bliss. (laughs) (laughs) Just ship her off to Europe. (laughs) Absolutely, you know. So off I went. And I mean, it turned out beautifully. I had a wonderful time there. I picked up the language uh, in six weeks. It it was great. The language, you know, became second name. It was Hungarian. Hungarian. So I traveled to Budapest and uh, 
spent six weeks there with relatives, with, like with two different aunts. Like one was my godmother and another one. So one was on my father's side, one was on my mother's side. And um, they took me around. They hung, Hungary is, Budapest is filled with spas from their, the Turks who, who ruled over Hungary. And uh, they took me swimming like every day. <laughs> it was a different pool. It was, you know, so for a 13-year-old, it was fabulous. Yeah. But that was my first experience alone. And I didn't find it daunting at all. Can I ask what the plane was like? Because I hear that in the 60s, planes were really different. Planes were large. They were not full. So you could actually be sitting in a seat and be able to lie down. You could just, there would be so many empty seats, you could just flip the armrests and actually lie down because they weren't as strict on seat belting. Well, even now, I mean, during the flight, you can take the seat belt off. But you could actually lie down and act and sleep. But they did smoke. But it was flying then was more was more of a luxury because it wasn't overused. Yeah, you know, so it was luxurious for everyone, not just the business class. I've read that people drank a lot on the planes. Oh, and absolutely. That, that people <laughs> would land and just be sloshed. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> no question about it. <laughs> And what was it like going through airports at that time? Because there wasn't security like there is now. No, there wasn't. And actually, when I was 13 and went through the Vienna airport, what my parents didn't foresee was the fact that the airports didn't have, like, full 24-hour staffing. They didn't have those little push carts to carry your luggage because we weren't globalized. It, It just wasn't... There wasn't a need for it. So when I arrived there at midnight and I had to catch this bus, which was on the other side of the airport, I had to lug all that luggage that they packed with me as fast as my little feet could carry carry me all the way through the airport to get this bus. So that was probably the worst part of the trip. Yeah. Other than that, everything went fine. But um, it, you know, it was interesting because there was very little, if any, security. There was, uh, like I said, no staff, no help to with your luggage. Like, and it didn't matter that I was thirteen; I was on my own. I was going to say, my no, bags, one no, one, no, 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 no one questions. Because nowadays, people would definitely take notice if there was a thirteen-year-old. Well, I was, I was, you know. Uh, mature-looking 13-year-old, mm-hmm. but nonetheless, I mean, they had to have known I was a teenager, yeah. but still, you know, I was lugging all, <laughs> all that stuff. And you had never met this family before? Never. Oh, wow. Never. So that it was, it was, I, I wasn't afraid of those kinds of things. And my parents, you know, it's funny, they had these weird, you know, f- for European parents, they had these weird mental, you know, mentalities. Like, it wasn't, it wasn't okay to visit a boy's house, even if there was supervision there. But it was okay to send your kid <laughs> across the world. <laughs> Just different, different ways of thinking, you know. Yeah. But that's what started my interest. And of course, once I went back, my parents decided to go back. Like we went as a family. 
when I was 15, so uh, that would have been 50 years ago. So we went when I was 15. I don't know what era that was. It's in late 60s still, I think. 69, yes. Was it, um, were you culturally shocked at all? Not going to Hungary. Like, I enjoyed Hungary. It was very different. It was more slow-paced, and I noticed that people really took time to enjoy their lives. Mm. But I find the same today, Mm -hmm. to be honest. Oh, totally. It hasn't changed very much. And I also imagine, because similarly, when I I wasn't 13, but when I was 16, my parents sent me to family in the Netherlands. And I remember feeling an odd sense of familiarity because a lot of the food and the language, all of it was familiar to me because I'd grown up in a household where mom spoke Dutch and she fed us Dutch food. And so it didn't feel that strange to me Mm -hmm. to be in another culture because it was like a familiar culture to me. Likewise, likewise. And to be honest with you, Hungary was one of the not least affected by communism, but it was out of all the countries that that were under communist regime, it was one of the more forward countries. They seemed to have more abilities to you know to to work and and thrive than some of the other countries under communist regime. So I didn't really notice anything politically oppressive mm. when I was in Hungary. And I was a child. I probably wasn't really looking for it, but I, I I had no sense of it at that point. But when I was 15 and I went back with them, well, we, you know, my parents decided, oh, we're going to travel all through Europe on our way to Hungary. And we were also going to Russia because my, my father is from the Ukraine. His parents are from Hungarian background, but the borders there have changed so many times. Mm. So I got a taste of what their traveling looked like and decided that it was never going to be my kind of traveling because their traveling was like zip, 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 zip all through these, you know, different countries. Been there, done that, saw this, you know, like went to Rome, saw the Colosseum, Went to Pompeii, saw Pompeii, went, but that's all they did. They'd go and see like one of the big, you know, big monuments, uh, monuments and then they'd been there. And I thought, oh, so I, I mean, it was like a whirlwind to me. I only have moments of, of memory, you know, like some things that really stood out for me. But otherwise, it was just a whirlwind until we actually got to Hungary and stopped. But what was very, you know, when you ask culturally shocking, when we did go into communist Russia, like the USSR back in 1969, 1971, crossing the border from, and this is from one communist country into Russia, right? Crossing the border, they tore our car apart. Like literally they took the doors off, took them apart. They had machine guns right at the border. Like, I'd never seen a gun, let alone a machine gun. It was absolutely overwhelming to see that kind of, that kind of power at the border, that kind of, it was, it was overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And to 
and to actually feel the part of, um, I, I began to really feel what it was like not to have freedom because we take freedom so much for granted and all of a sudden it was like, okay, you know, unless you know what freedom, like the lack of freedom is, you don't really know how to appreciate freedom. And here I was actually witness to a country that my relatives lived there and yet they were never allowed to leave the country. They couldn't say, oh, well, let's go visit our relatives over in Canada. Like, there was no such thing. You know, wouldn't it be nice to go visit Italy? No, you couldn't do that. There was no such thing. You could only travel within the USSR. Mm. I, I learned many limitations that they lived under. And so I was only 15 at the time, but it was it was pretty shattering to realize what and and again the oppression of the politics was so evident everywhere as a 15 year old i'd walk around you know being a with my little russian pretend accent you know using lenin's name and my relatives were like <laughs> freaking out because this was a very real fear to them. You know, like they could have been scooped off the street. I could have been scooped off the street. Mm -hmm. When we got to the town where my father, where my father's relatives lived, he was born about 10 kilometers outside of the city. They would not let us go to the city, hmm. not even for a visit. Like to the, to the, not the city, they would not let us go to the, it was a village actually. They would not let us drive to the village to see his family home. We had to stay in the hotel and his family all had to come in to see us. We were not allowed to go have a family meal out there. That's how controlled it was. And we were watched. And if we broke that rule, because we figured, well, it'd be easy enough to sneak into a car. But the thing is, if you broke that rule, you'd be told that you could never go back. Of course, none of us wanted to take that chance, right? Yeah. So it was a very, that was quite, you know, when we talk about cultural differences, that was quite mm -hmm. a cultural difference. And now, you know, even with my kids, we talk about freedom. And I say we toss around the word freedom so easily. But oh, totally. I still say, unless you know what it's like to live without it, you really don't appreciate what it is to have it. It really speaks to um, privilege, which is something we talk about pretty frequently on this podcast. And this concept of like at that time, Russians not being able to leave mm -hmm. um, resonates with me because when I lived in the Netherlands, I had a friend who was Russian, still have a friend. Her name's Adele. Hi, Adele. I know you listen. Um, and we loved to travel together, go on little trips like all around Europe. And I remember at one point we wanted to go to the UK and we couldn't go because she was unable to get granted a visa to go because she held a Russian passport. And that was the first time I really thought about passport privilege and how lucky I am to hold a Canadian passport because I think it's something like 160 countries we can enter on arrival, like no advance visa. Yeah. And that is such a rare thing on this planet. So many people have to jump through so many hoops just to go on a vacation. Yes. 
Mm-hmm. So, so that was interesting you bring that up. So that was my experience. I had two summers where I traveled with my parents mm-hmm. on these whirlwind European vacays. <laughs> and, you know, ending up with family, which was always, you know, a great celebratory thing. But it was then that I decided I wanted to go back and see some of the places that they kind of whisked me through too quickly. And so when I was 19, I decided to go back. So whatever year that would have been. <laughs> <laughs> 69, 71, 73, 73. Um, So I worked all summer and worked through the winter so that I could afford to go. And I wasn't backpacking. I mean, backpacking wasn't really a thing then. Yeah. (laughs) It was suitcasing. But, I mean, I, I loved going alone. To me, being alone forced me to be more outgoing, forced me to meet people. And my whole thing about traveling was that I wanted to, it wasn't even about the scenery, like about the places or the monuments as much as it was to get the feel of the local life and just to walk around in it. And and even in Paris, if I could, didn't matter that I couldn't speak French, I could still go to a cafe and I could people watch. And, you know, a few times people sat down and we were able to converse, you know, with a piece of paper and pencil or sometimes they spoke English. So it just it just was that was my thing. I liked to just get the feel of the countries. So. When I planned that trip, of course, I was going to go visit family as well. So I I was going through all the paperwork and red tape of getting into Russia again. And I decided, you know, if I'm like the part of Russia I was entering is very close to the Hungarian border. But I thought if I have to go through all this red tape, I may as well spend a few extra hundred dollars and go see what was then Leningrad and Moscow and wow. Kiev and Lvov. And I mean, I didn't speak any Russian and I certainly knew that up that end they didn't speak any Hungarian. So I was going into very cold waters, so to speak. And they really, they built my itinerary. I couldn't say I want to spend more time in Leningrad. I mean, all I could say is I want to spend more time in Uzhgorod, which is where my father was from. But mm. they said, okay, you've got three days in Leningrad. They drop you off at the hotel. Nobody on the plane that you were with ahead of time gets dropped to the same hotel. They all get dropped to different hotels. It's wild. Huh. And, and so uh, they were monitoring you, clearly. Oh, they knew where you were at always, all times. Okay. Always. It was Always. Did they give you, my mom told me, because she traveled through China when it was really communist, and she said that she was given not like fake money, essentially, that she wasn't allowed to use actual Chinese money. It had to be like tourist designated money. And she was saying this was how they monitored um, where they were going and what they were spending money oh, isn't on. Isn't that interesting? No. <laughs> no, because I remember using rubles there. Okay. So yeah. I was using their their money. But I knew that I was, at any time, I could be being, you know, I could have been watched. So, but I mean, I wasn't concerned about it because I was, you know, pretty boring, all things considered. But, you know, I got to go see 
I loved Leningrad, St. Petersburg. You know, I got to go see the winter palaces, the summer palaces. I So that kind of history really um, interested me a lot. It was just a beautiful place. Leningrad was, it, it was like a, they had a lot of canals, much like Venice. They live on a system of canals. But it was very gray, and the people were gray, and their clothing was gray. And yet, you know, I could go to the opera or the ballet for next to nothing in terms of cash money. Like, all their people could go to enjoy the arts. It wasn't a lot of money for anyone. The average Russian could go and see these beautiful things. So, you know, the streets and the people and the clothing were gray, gray, gray. And then you'd go into this, the opera house, which was like opulent and with chandeliers and lights and marble and, you know, and the beauty of the show, it would be like one extreme to the to the next. But so I, I got to enjoy the beauty they had to offer. But it was very interesting to put it together with the people. The people were very kind. And when I got to Moscow, there you could really feel political oppression. Like you could, it was in the air all the time. But I went to, uh, you know, I would just go to different coffee houses. And I remember one afternoon running into this young man and we ended up having coffee and we ended up sitting there for like four hours having this complete conversation just on a piece of paper. But it was it was lovely. And to me, that's what traveling was all about back then. Again, you know, did, did I, was I able to call my parents? No. <laughs> there was really wasn't, ask. there really wasn't any way. Yeah. Were they concerned for you at all? I mean, especially in that time, I'm sure even when I was traveling alone as a woman, which I did for a long time before I met my partner, I would just get so many comments from people, not just my parents, friends and colleagues questioning whether it was safe and why would I want to do that? Why would I put myself at risk? So I imagine at that time, there was probably quite a taboo against it. Well, you know, not so much. Interesting. Not so much. We didn't have the worries and concerns that we have now about traveling. Like now we've got a whole list of places that are unsafe to go to. Mm. There was no such list back then. You know, um, Traveling was considered more of an experience than are you going alone. Like it wasn't built on tours. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It was. It was more of a more, not necessarily a solo thing, but it wasn't built on 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 groups. Yeah. So, being a woman, being a man, traveling alone. I never found that it made that much of a difference. I think it all depended really on what your personal comfort level was. Mm -hmm. If you were comfortable going into that position. Mm -hmm. Now, personally me, I'll tell you when I got off the plane in Leningrad, I'd been on the plane for uh, the last very long trip, the last 
10, 12 hours with with people that spoke no English. So not the pilot, not the stewardess, not a single passenger on the train, on the plane, nothing. And I finally got into my hotel and I dumped my bags. And as tired as I went, I went down to the bar, <laughs> ordered myself a drink, <laughs> and out loud in the middle of the bar said, does anyone speak English? <laughs> so clearly I was not a shy person. <laughs> I get it though, because I've had that, especially when I traveled alone. When um, you're surrounded by a foreign language all the time, I would get into moments of desperation where I would do similar things, like seek out someone who could speak English because I was so depraved of conversation. Yeah, and I remember this gentleman, you know, like older gentleman, by then he he was in his 30s or 40s, but older for me, you know, I was 19. He came over, he was from England, and he was there on business. And he sat down with me and, you know, um, chatted. And I just, you know, I just kind of went, (laughs) all this stuff came out. I just spent 12 hours on this plane, blah, 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 blah. He very patiently listened to me. And then he very nicely, you know, like gave me some ideas as to where I should go and what I should, you know, ask to go see. And and so he was very helpful. He was leaving the next morning. So that that was the end of my help there. But it was nice to have that connection. And, and that's how I got to take my next step forward. You know, like you reach out. You meet someone that you can communicate with. They give you your next step forward. And that's kind of how it went. You had to force yourself onto people to create your next step forward. Mm -hmm. You know, what did they recommend? And and then following up on that recommendation. And and so that's what made it such an experience. Mm -hmm. It's interesting you say that because I've heard some people say that travel now can be more lonely because we're not required to connect anymore to be able to travel. You can travel alone and completely rely on your phone the entire time without ever having to ask someone for a helping hand. And um, I think it's probably detrimental to like the kind of human connection that people, especially during that time, probably... I felt as travelers. I think so, too, because how approachable are you, you know, even to some, you know, to a foreigner in another country? How approachable are you if you're sitting on a phone? Mm -hmm. Not so much. Mm -hmm. I was telling you before we started recording I started backpacking at around 19, and at that time, mobile phones weren't super prominent yet. So some people had them, but for the most part, no. And I stayed in hostels, and I I remember specifically in Italy, loving the culture of hostels because a room full of 30 strangers and everyone would sit down and eat dinner together, laughing, we'd go out drinking, we would just all connect. And I really loved just talking to people from different countries and like learning about what their life was like. And I would build these friendships with people that I'm still in contact with. But now when I go into hostels, everyone's just on their phone or on their laptop or Skyping with someone. And it's like, 
And see, I kind of missed out on the hostel thing. It yeah. wasn't really a thing back then yet. Not yet, yeah. Um, where you stayed kind of depended on who you knew. Mm. When I went to Paris, I could go back to Paris. And I was lucky. Be- <laughs> Interesting story. I was lucky because my father had an aunt who was a nun and lived in a nunnery there. And so she knew I was coming, and it was... When I'd been there with my parents, they were in, like, the old original convent, like this big stone building. And But by the time I got there at 19, they were now in, like, a little low-rise apartment. So I was given, like, a little room with a balcony overlooking the garden, a key... And just told that I need to be inside the gates before midnight. And of course, I was 19. And back then, we weren't looking for parties. It was a different era. We weren't looking for to go out. Like, traveling wasn't about partying and drinking. I mean, we drank. But that was the nature of the You know, in my case, that was the nature of Hungarians and Russians. We drank. (laughs) But, but, you know, I wasn't into partying, so I was always home well before midnight. But it was interesting that, you know, I was staying at a convent and, you know, prancing around, (laughs) prancing around Paris. And whenever I was in Paris, I always would take, I, I had a Eurail pass, and every time I went back, I would take um, the night train to Venice because I always knew that I, I, there's no way that I could afford to spend a night in Venice, but there was no way that I wanted to miss a day in Venice. So I used to take the night train from Paris to Venice and it would let me off at dawn. I would spend the entire day in Venice you know, scouting out the little shops around St. Mark's Square and just enjoying the day and the pigeons and, you know, being in Venice and seeing the water and standing on a bridge and watching the gondola go out, go, go past me underneath because I couldn't afford those experiences. But just being that close allowed me to feel a little bit of it. So I would always do that one day to Venice and then take the night and then at night take the night train back again and I'd be in Paris again. And then I remember when I was going to England I was giving myself 3 weeks in in London. But I had no I didn't know anyone in London that I could stay with. So this was this was my first you know kind of glitch because I thought, well, okay, we're going to sit on this train and we're going to get to London and then I'm going to have to get on the phone and try and find a room or someplace to stay. So it was like way up in the air, like completely not planned and like no, no internet, no nothing like that, right? And so, you know, this was a funny story because I got on the, I got on the train and all of a sudden this Young guy gets on the train. Turns out he's from Belleville. No. Yeah, and his name is Mike, and <laughs> and he gets on the train, and I see that he has a Canadian passport, and I went, oh, thank God, <laughs> thank God, someone who speaks English, thank you. <laughs> so we start chatting right away, and 
then all of a sudden this young young woman gets on and she's got a Hungarian passport. <gasps> and I think, what are the odds of that? And her name was Judith, right? So I start talking to her in Hungarian. We're talking back and forth in Hungarian and Mike's sitting there, you know, and then I talk to Mike in English. And then somehow we find out that Judith and Mike both speak French. <gasps> so here <laughs> So here we're able to converse, but only two at a time. Like Mike and I can speak in English, Judith and Mike can speak in French, and Judith and I can speak in Hungarian and that was our that was our train ride. It was our train ride to London and then Judith had a place, you know, had had a place to go, but we decided to hook up all of us because this was the year that oh you love this. This was the opening day of two movies, The Exorcist. Oh, a classic. And Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Can you imagine those two movies coming out on the same day? Like, give me a break. Like, honestly. And of course we had to see both of them. So so we made that plan. Yeah. But in the meantime, I still didn't know, you know, Mike saying, where are you going? I said, I don't know. <laughs> I said, I'm going to have to get on the phone, get a newspaper, figure it out. But I'll figure it out and I'll be at the movies, right? So we decided to go see a midnight show of one and the early morning show of the other. So he says, why don't you come, why don't you come back with me? He had relatives there. He says, come back with me. He says, at least you can use the phone there and, you know, it'll be easier for you. And I said, okay. And while I'm there, like, his relatives make a call to some neighbor, and it turns out this neighbor is running, a, you know, runs a rooming house and rents out rooms by, you know, by the month or whatever. And she happened to have a room that was open, and she agreed to rent it to me for three weeks. Oh, beautiful. Like, talk <laughs> about falling into my... And so what better way to live in London for three weeks than to rent a little room. So there were certain, there were only certain times you could use the, the bathtub. Yeah. And there were, you know, and you, the bathroom was like outside of your room, but in my room, they, they had everything. They had a hot plate that I could cook on and dishes and bedding. Everything came with the room. Good to go. It was great. <laughs> So there I stayed, and we went and saw our movies, and then Judith went off to wherever Judith went off to. I don't remember, but <laughs> Mike and I, and, you know, Mike was able to get his relatives to score another bike. So he had a bicycle to use, and then he got one for me. And then our job every day became, okay, let's hit an open market buy some wine, buy some bread, buy some cheese and some fruit, and let's find a new park every day to go and picnic in. And that's what we did. Amazing. And that's what we did, and it was wonderful. And actually, Mike and I stayed in touch for quite a time after that. Like when I came back and went to university, he used to come and visit me in London when I was at university. No way. Yeah, so we stayed in touch for a few years. Awesome. And... Um, yeah, so that was kind of a fun little occurrence, you know, the way the events all kind of fell into place there. Yeah. 
So that was a lot of fun. A couple years ago, I, I think Cuba is probably the only place in the world where you still have to be resourceful because there's no Wi-Fi, there's no internet access in most places, um, and it's very community-oriented. So the, your story makes me giggle because I remember one day doing the same thing. My friend and I hopped in a shared cab to this random town and arrived there and had nowhere to stay. Um, and there you stay in homestays, so you stay with families in a little room in their house. And so we had no choice. We just had to start knocking on doors. And so we knock on this door, and this this Cuban woman comes out, and we're trying to explain to her, we need somewhere to sleep. Same thing, like trying to write to her with our little bit of Spanish. And then she tells us, oh, no, I'm sorry, my room is full. But then she calls her husband, and her husband comes out onto the road and starts walking down the street just yelling. And all the neighbors are coming out. And finally, he comes back like 20 minutes later, and he's like, I found a place. I found a place. And he he has us follow him through the town. And finally, we arrive at this house, and this woman has a room available. And it was just so, it was just, you have to be so resourceful and figure it out. And it's almost more fun that way. Yeah, no, I, I've been to Cuba. I've seen that yeah. that kind of resourcefulness. It is yeah. it is very cool. Yeah. And it is very interesting how they'll all just rent out their rooms, mm-hmm. you know, these yeah. homestays. It's great. It's a great way for them to make money, too. So yeah, absolutely. Works out great. Yeah. And we got kind of really into the just, like, no plans whatsoever. We'll just find a car to drive us, and we'll find a place to stay, and we'll find somewhere to eat. We'll I figure don't it mind out. that, though. I, <laughs> Like, I don't yeah. mind that at all. Two years ago, I went back to Hungary after 27 years. Wow. And How was it different? Did you find it different? It was different in the sense that they've got, they're eating a lot healthier <laughs> than they used to. <laughs> when I was there, I was like, I can't eat meat anymore. It was all meat. Well, it is all meat, but the thing is, <laughs> It's not as much fried meat okay. as it as it used to be. Everything okay. used to be fried, but you're right. They <laughs> they were not a very veg. They've never been a very vegetable oriented eating culture. <laughs> uh, no, but but what I noticed is in restaurants. You know, like one of the one of the main things in every Hungarian restaurant would have been like you know schnitzel. You know, like most of them don't have. They have goulash, but so things have changed yeah. that way. Um, but the sites are, the city is the same. Like they have a rule there that nothing can be built higher than the steeple of the parliament buildings. So, so in that sense, when you look at this outlay of the city, when you stand, you know, on, on a hill overlooking the Danube, it looks very much the same. You don't have all the modern skylines that you have in other cities because they won't allow it, right? And it's kind of nice. Like, they really honor the old. So that was a nice thing. But, you know, even when I was away in Europe, I didn't find that I used... I didn't call my kids that often. I figured... (laughs) I got used to traveling. It was like, when I'm traveling, I'm traveling, and it's my time. Yeah. And that's that. So I didn't find that I called my kid. I mean, once in a while to touch base, yes, yeah. I called. But it wasn't like a daily thing. 
it was it was my time. So I mean, I loved being there with my relatives, and 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 it turned out that the Stones were playing again. I was traveling alone, so I said, Ah, well, if I'm going to work and I get a ticket, I happened to get one in Berlin, so I. <laughs> flew to Berlin for four days just so I could see the stones, and I was very surprised at how very efficient their their public transportation was. I was able to zip around there yeah. easy peasy. Yeah. So I didn't find there either I needed to use my phone that much. Yeah. So you don't have to rely on that technology. That's very true. And and I think the fact that I never did in the past means that I'm less likely to do so. I understand, though, because I think because my partner and I, we both were sort of at the tail end of the period in which technology really kicked in for the travel that we still appreciate just wandering and, like, seeing what happens. Um, so we're pretty carefree in that department, I must say. And I really love that. And I think that it makes us both much better navigators in general because we have been forced to develop the skills that you need to be able to navigate without the yeah. crutch of technology. So, And I think that's the thing, that if you've, if you've started off without it, you don't rely on it. But mm-hmm. if you've only traveled with it, it's hard to... Yeah, to remove that. To remove that, yeah. And I think people get a little obsessed with needing to know. I think like a lot of people have a, nowadays when it comes to travel, they have a need to control, know where they are, know where they're going, what's the itinerary for the day. And I think like that's just because the travel industry has boomed and now it's all about like commercialized experiences. But I find that a lot of travelers have trouble letting go of that obsession with like controlling what their day will look like. Or sometimes it's sometimes it's just what is their own comfort level, you know? Yeah. Okay. I have some final questions. Okay. Uh, Tell us something you learned on your travels. Oh, there's so much. I don't know where to begin. (laughs) It definitely taught me to be more open-minded, to, you know, more accepting, more tolerant. Definitely taught me to be independent, more independent. I think I already was, but it definitely um, made me stronger that way. And just the love of learning, like learning about new people, new cultures. And that's really important because I, I later on in life became a teacher and so especially when I was teaching subjects like social studies or even history, you know, which is really not as boring as most people think. You know, it's really the study of people. Yeah. I took the experiences from my own life of travel and tried to instill some of that, some of those experiences into my students, you know, like just examining different cultures and why they do things the way they do because there's always you know there's reasons for it it's like either location or resources or you know we all do things differently but we do them because there are reasons for them and and so it's important not to judge how people do it because how people do something because we all do it for different reasons right Mm -hmm. so just an open-mindedness that way, I found, I learned. Yeah. And tell us about 
I was thinking it'd be fun for you to tell us about a person that you met that's really memorable on your travels. We've heard about Mike already. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Hard to say. There there are many people I've met who are relatives. There are many people, even relatives. Like, for example, two years ago when I went back to Hungary for the first time in many, many years, one of the most important things that I did plan was that I was going to be in my father's hometown in Russia on his birthday, which was June 4th. He's passed away, and I took ashes with me. I brought ashes with me, and I was going to bury them with his mother and father on his birthday in his hometown. And in doing that, I was also going to be uh, connecting with a cousin of mine who was my father's namesake. Okay, same name. And so I was quite looking forward to meeting up with my cousin, and he was going to take me to the to the cemetery and everything. And so I, I thought I was just going to be meeting him, but he started writing to me that he, you know, was really... Uh, not feeling well, he was in the hospital, he's still weak, and that his daughter came home to take care of him and that she might have to take me out to the cemetery because she, he was too weak. And as it turns out, like, you know, I don't want to put a damper here, but it, again, there's always a reason, thing, you know, things happen. I don't believe in coincidences. But unfortunately, literally the morning we were leaving to go to my father's hometown, my cousin's daughter contacted me and told me that my cousin had passed away. So literally, I go back to the hometown, and I had never met his wife or his two daughters, who were like were 20 and 21, so I'd never met them before. And here, their dad was now gone, and they took me to the to the cemetery, and I did what I had to do, and... I ended up staying the night and being part of, like, a village funeral. It happens, like, very quickly, not like here. They don't do all the preservation and everything. They just bury it. And I remember my father telling me, you know, how they did it. You know, they'd, they'd wheel the cart through the village, and all the villagers used to follow the cart with flowers. And so I remember my father telling me the story and, and me kind of reliving it, you know, th- through... You know, here's my father's namesake who passes on his birthday. It was just all very strange. But what it did, you know, like it just brought out so much compassion for his wife and his daughters that I realize now that I'm never going to be able to go back to Hungary without having to go back to my father's hometown and looking up these two girls, Dorothy and Carolyn, looking them up because all of a sudden it, it, I never really knew them as family, but I got to know them at, at this time and they grew very special to me. Yeah. But, um, We've got uh, three minutes left. Oh, okay. Oh, sorry, six minutes left. <laughs> okay, I'll say the conclusion. Yep. Okay. Oh. <laughs> We're concluding now. (laughs) 
all good. It's all good. <laughs> Keep us going. Okay, now we're losing more time. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. <laughs> oh, you're very welcome. It's been my pleasure. <laughs> Well, Alpaca My Bags is hosted by me, Erin Hines, and produced by Katie Lohr here in Toronto. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us on Instagram and on Twitter at, at @alpacamybagspod. You can also reach us through our website, alpacamybags.ca. If you like what you're hearing, please tell a friend about our podcast. You can also share a screenshot of our podcast to your Insta story and maybe tag us and then maybe we'll reshare it and it'll be fun. So please do that. Anyways, till next time, I hope you get to help pack your bag soon. Bye. <laughs>